good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, uh, you might just want to grab it. I don't have a particular passage to take you to. We will be jumping around a little bit. Today is the second in a series that we entitled The One Act of Righteousness, based on Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, it's an amazing passage where, where Paul says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. And so, what we've been looking at is that the, the, the one act of righteousness, this, this concise term, is actually jam-packed with a lot of events of what Jesus did. And so, we're taking a moment and looking at each of those, and there's really about nine of them, Last week, we started with His incarnation, and this morning, we're considering this, this one act of righteousness by considering the saving or the, 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 the sinless life of Jesus Christ. Now, the sinless life of Jesus Christ, it's one of those things where I suppose like a lot of these are, but when I think about the, the truthfulness of Christianity, this is one of those details that help me believe that this is probably the case. I don't mean probably as if I actually am doubting it, but I mean if we were to make up Christianity, and there are people who say that this is just a fable, it's a made-up, it's a fictitious thing, we wouldn't have made a sinless Savior at the center of the story. We wouldn't have made the hero a sinless, perfect Savior. We would have made somebody good, but not perfect, right? Uh, we would have made somebody who, a Savior that we could relate to, somebody who wasn't so intimidating because they were always right, right? We, we would have made a Savior that was, had flaws like us, better than us for sure, but not that much better than us. Somebody like us, but, you know, still had an Achilles heel. And, and I don't say that because I'm just guessing that's what we would do. We actually know for a fact in our culture, in our history, we have created salvation stories, and we've created saviors in our art, our literature, and some of our mythology. Hercules, Robin Hood. Achilles, Perseus, King Arthur, all of these were savior types, but they were flawed. They had issues to work through. They were more relatable to us. By contrast, the Bible holds forth a savior who is perfect in every way, and while that might be intimidating, it's also what makes him so inviting. That there, there's, there's, this actually can be a reality. There is hope, right? Now, we can't relate to Him in many ways because we know deep down we actually don't compare with Him. But the more we know about Jesus Christ, the more we are drawn to learn more about Him. And His perfection, far from making Him impossible, and that's another reason we wouldn't have made a, a perfect Savior, a perfect hero, because if we wanted people to believe in this new system, we know that would be out of the pale of what people could accept. But his, his perfection, far from making him a fable, fascinates us and intrigues us even more. So Jesus may not be the Savior that we would have imagined, or really the Savior we would have wanted from an earthly perspective, but He's certainly the Savior we need. And this morning, we're going to look at three points of that. Number one, the reality of Jesus' sinless life the reason of His sinless life, and then finally, the relevance of His sinless life to us. How does it play? What, what's the impact in the way we live our lives? The reality, the reason, and the relevance. So, I know I've got some kids this morning as we're going to have kids with us, and that's great. So, for you young kids, here's what we're going to do. Last week, somebody got the prize, and they were really, really stoked on that. So, here's what I want you to do today. All right, you listening? Actually, I want the adults to do this too, but you give me a good excuse to, to spell it out. Okay, I want you to write down all three of my points, all three of my points. You're going to see them on the screen, so it's really easy. 
but also I'm going to be talking about a family, actually I'm going to talk about that real soon, a lamb and a priest. And I want you to draw in, in, in kind of what those three pictures should be doing. If you can send that to Hannah, you guys know Hannah, email that to Hannah by tomorrow night. We're going to put a raffle on all the kids who submitted that, and we're going to pull out a winner, and she'll let you know by Tuesday, okay? So write down the three points of the message, and I'm going to be talking about a family, uh, a lamb, and a priest, and I want you to just draw a picture of, of what you think that should look like and email that to Hannah. Well, with that, let's jump into it, talking about the reality of Jesus' sinless life. The Bible makes very clear that Jesus Christ was free both from what we call actual sin and inherent sin. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, it says that Jesus did all things in order to fulfill all righteousness. Well, let's stop and think about that for a second. Imagine this. Jesus never, ever had to pray for forgiveness. Now, if you're a Christian, that's probably the content of a lot of what you're praying about. Jesus never had to pray for forgiveness. He never had to confess a shortcoming. He never had to apologize for a wrongdoing. He never prayed for forgiveness. He never had to confess a shortcoming. He never had to apologize. Now, practically speaking, can you imagine what this must have looked like? Right? I mean, just every time I read the Bible, I always try to put myself in that moment to understand what they felt like, what, 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 what they experienced. And just thinking about growing up in a family with somebody like that, could you imagine what that was like? Now, I had a brother, and in our household, we always fought because we, that's what siblings do, right? And the conversation about any family, that kind of sibling rivalry always takes place. And parents always have this conversation, Chuck, Chuck, apologize to your brother. Okay, I'm sorry I called you a dork. All right, John, what do you say to Chuck? All right, I'm sorry I broke your skateboard, right? That's basically how the apology system works, right? Imagine in, in, in Jesus' time, Mary and Joseph trying to parent them. All right, James, apologize to Jesus. I'm sorry I called you a Gentile and then he told you you smell like a camel. Okay, Jesus, do, do you want to, do you have something to apologize to James? No. You don't want to confess anything to your brother? I don't have anything to confess. I mean, you have to imagine that conversation. He never, ever did anything wrong at all. It wasn't like up until he was normal and then all of a sudden at 21, he took on the mantle of being the Savior Messiah. He was always perfect. Imagine his brothers and sisters. Why can't you be more like Jesus? Come on. Is that hard to ask? You know, look at your brother. He never did anything wrong. The scriptures were very clear. Not only actual sin, but inherent sin. In other words, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, when the angel was speaking to Mary about what was going on, the angel says, the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy, the Son of God. Scripture repeatedly attests to the sinlessness of Jesus. I, I, I can't give you all those passages, but here's a couple of them. I already read to you Luke number one, uh, chapter 1, verse 35. Acts chapter 3, verse 14, when Peter and John were speaking before the religious leaders of the people of Israel about what they had done to Jesus, this is what he says, but you denied, notice what he calls them, the holy and the righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Uh, in, in Peter writes later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, 
he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In fact, friends, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, tells us that while dying a horrible death, while bearing the consequence for our sin, Jesus was in fact praying for the very ones who were committing this act against him. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, it says this, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the disciples and the angels and the prophets testify to Jesus' sinlessness. But even the demons and those who opposed Him either affirmed this truth or they could not deny it. I think in Mark chapter 1, Jesus' ministry begins according to Mark's gospel, and He's casting out a demon. The demon says to Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. And the religious leaders who oppose Jesus, Jesus says to them in John chapter 8, verse 46, I took this from the New Living Translation, I like the way they rendered it. Jesus says, which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? The implication is none of them. And since I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Friends, the reality of Jesus' sinlessness is an undeniable fact. It is a fact of Scripture. Now, let me be clear on that. Whether or not you believe that is another story. I'm simply answering the question, does the Bible teach that Jesus is a sinless Savior? And the answer is clearly yes. Whether or not you choose to embrace that or believe that, that's another question. But we got to be clear that the Bible teaches Jesus was perfect, and Jesus was in fact sinless. The reason I make that distinction is we haven't talked about what value that might have for you? How does that impact your life? What does this mean to you that Jesus is sinless? The fact of His sinlessness is only something unique about Him, but how does that intersect with you? And that's what my next two points want to answer. But before we do that, I want you to write down three verses if you're a note taker. Write down 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, then write down 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And then your last verse will be Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15. Those three verses, there are many more, but those three verses do two very important things. Each of them make the case for Jesus' sinless life, and each of them offer a reason for Jesus' sinless life. Okay, so what I want to do now is I want to show you, as we transition to talking about the reason for Jesus' life, those three verses as they make the case that He is sinless, and then let's talk about the reason that each of these make that why Jesus had to be sinless. Number one, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, right? So He's making the case that Jesus is, in fact, the righteous one. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. And then finally, Hebrews 4, uh, there's a lot to that verse, but I just want to zero in on the statement where he says, without sin. Okay? So let's look at them one at a time as we talk about the reason for Jesus' sinless life. Number one, 1 Peter chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, here's the reason, that He might bring us to God, 
Peter's talking about one of the reasons of Jesus' sinless life was that he would be able to bring us to God. If, God, if Jesus was going to be the mediator between God and man, Jesus must be able to represent both parties equally. That's what mediators do. They represent the interests of both parties. Jesus could represent humanity because of his incarnation, but if he was sinful, he couldn't represent God because God is sinless. So Jesus' sinlessness makes him able to bring us to God. Paul gets even more intense in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For Christ, oh, let me go to the 2 Corinthians. Here we go. For our sake he made him to be, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, if, if, if you read that verse and it's not a kind of mental mic drop moment, you're too familiar with your Bible. Read what it's saying. For our sake, the one who never knew sin was made to be sin. Why? So that we, you, could become the very righteousness of God. Peter's alluding to the fact that Jesus' sinless life allows him to be the bridge between God and man. Paul is saying that Jesus' sinlessness allows us to be counted with God's righteousness. See, there's a, something amazing going on in 2 Corinthians 5, this great exchange. God exchanges our sinfulness for Jesus' sinlessness. In other words, he's my substitute. He was your substitute if you put your faith in him. He is the substitute. And if that wasn't enough, and there's so much more we could unpack of these, but I just want to get to the point here. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's the, what's the benefit of this? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, if Jesus was going to be the high priest, he had to be able to represent the people to God, and he could because he was in the incarnation, makes him be able to represent humanity to God. If he's going to represent God to the people, then he had to be truly and accurately sinless in order to do that very thing. You see, if he was incarnated but was full of sin, then he couldn't do the deal. He could only represent humanity, but he couldn't represent deity. He had to be incarnated, and he had to remain sinless. He had to be the God-man. And, and we, we can't get into it, but friends, look at what Hebrews is saying. We can come to this throne, and we can receive grace because he is divine, and grace is the pejorative of the divine, or the, uh, the prerogative of the divine. He can give us grace, but he can also give us mercy because he's human. And so, because we have the unique God-man, we can receive grace because he, that is His to give as God, and we can receive mercy because that is His to give because He understands what it is to be human. So, the reason for Jesus' sinless life, in a sense, was to make His incarnation effective. The reason that Jesus, is, Jesus had to live a sinless life was so that His incarnation would be effective. His incarnation was only the beginning of the saving work that He came to do. It was just part of it. It just started it. It continued on with His sinful, or excuse me, sinless life. 
So he, the reason he had to have a sinless life was to make his incarnation effective so that he could be a mediator and the great high priest. But even that's not the reason. The reason he wanted to be the mediator and high priest is so that he could give you and me God's righteousness, God's grace, and God's mercy. So the reason of Jesus' sinlessness is so that you and, all, you and I and everyone who have faith in him could receive God's mercy and grace and his righteousness. And friends, this isn't something that just the New Testament teaches us. This is something that this has always been the plan. This has always been the plan, which is why, if you're familiar with your Bibles, John chapter 1, John the Baptist looks at Jesus, and what does John call Jesus? He doesn't say, oh, there's the sacrifice for our sins. He says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that, I just pivoted right there, right? Where did this Lamb thing come from? We're talking about Jesus. Let me explain this. And for that, I want you to grab your Bibles, and I want you to go with me to the book of Exodus. If you're unfamiliar, that's the second book of the Bible, so go all the way to the beginning and go write two pages, or two books. Exodus chapter 14, excuse me, Exodus chapter 12. So while you're turning to Exodus chapter 12, let me give you the context. This is where God is delivering His people out of, Exodus, out of um, Egypt, and this is the end of the ten plagues. This is the last one that's coming. But he doesn't want his people affected by it. And so he says to them, what I want you to do is get a lamb and kill it and put its blood on the doorpost. So when the angel of death comes over and he sees the blood on the door, he's going to pass over. Which is why the Jews to this day call it Passover. It's because the angel of death saw the blood, saw the sacrifice, and passed over. And so notice what the Lord says to Israel in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for the household. Now, skip down to verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. What does that word mean? It means perfect, without spot or stain, without blemish. This is a perfect lamb. Skip over one book to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 22. Leviticus chapter 22. So, so what happens, just so you know the context, as you're getting to Leviticus 22, God brings the nation of Israel out of Egypt and establishes them as their people. And then he, we get the book of Exodus, or excuse me, the book of Leviticus. And um, Leviticus, I always call it the, the book of the death of all Bible reading programs because people get to Leviticus and they're like, what in the world's going on? So what happens is God brings his people out, right? And now he says, now you're a special and unique people to me. This is how you're going to live. In every aspect of your life, this is how I want you to live. That's what Leviticus is about. So God uniquely creates his people. He says, but you live this way because you're not your own people. You're my people. I brought you out of Egypt, so you're my people. Live this way. By the way, this is also why as Christians we live a particular way. That we gather with God's people on Sundays and in the morning and the evenings. We gather and worship because we're set apart as well. We live a particular way. And so Leviticus is God giving all these rules. And right here in Leviticus 22, he's talking about holy living. So what I want to zero in on is verses 19 to 21. If God's people somehow sin against the Lord, how can they be made right again? Well, he says, okay, you're going to sacrifice a lamb. So look at Leviticus 22, verse 19. If it is to be accepted, the it being the lamb, the sacrifice for the offering, if it's to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish. 
Now, I want you to skip down a couple of verses to the end of verse 21. To be accepted, the lamb must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Three times. Perfect, without blemish. This, perf- this lamb has to be perfect, a beautiful specimen. And then lastly, Numbers, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. We see this coming out again. Again, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, let me just briefly tell you, Deuteronomy is basically God's explanation of the Ten Commandments. Most people don't realize this, but it's, they're about to go into the promised land, and God one more time says, all right, remember the Ten Commandments I gave you in Exodus? So here they are again, and Numbers are Deuteronomy 5, they talk about the Ten Commandments, and most people don't realize that the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, from chapter 6 to 26, is God unpacking each of the Ten Commandments and what that's going to look like for their lives nationally and individually. People don't realize that. So, by the time we get to chapter 17, we're on commandment five, how we relate to the authorities in our lives. But this is what he says in verse one. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So, When John says, here comes the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, he's pulling on a whole bunch of understanding from the Old Testament that when God's people sinned against God, there would have to be a sacrifice to to atone for that sin, right? And this is something that we all hold to. If If there is a crime, look at it this way, if there's a crime, that crime has to be paid for. If you sin against God, that has to be paid for. But why a lamb? Or let's talk about it this way. What was the penalty for that crime? Well, if you know anything about jurisprudence, the, the, the degree to which the value of the crime, the higher the value of the thing offended against, the greater the punishment. What should be the punishment when someone sins or has, commits a crime against absolute perfection and holiness? Death. Even in our own judicial system, we understand there are certain crimes worthy of death because anything less than that would be unjust. And God is saying, when you have sinned against my holiness, my goodness, my righteousness, that's that's an infinite crime, and it's got to be dealt with. If we don't deal with that problem, we have an unjust God, and who wants an unjust God? And yet God says at the same time, I can't have my creation, the apex of my creation, dying every time they've committed an offense against me. So I'm going to create a sacrifice. Something can die in your place, but it can't just be any old beast of the field. It's got to be a choice lamb, perfect, because I am perfect. You committed a perfect crime, there needs to be a perfect punishment for that crime. And so we have this system called the sacrificial system. Now, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, um, or if you find that God asking for an animal to be killed seems a little bit uh, gross, a little bit barbaric, a little bit kind of, ugh, you're right. You get the point. You get the point of what God was trying to communicate, that these crimes are visceral, there's a consequence for this action, and it's, it's, it's disgusting, and we should not want to look at that. This is why when the lamb was sacrificed, they didn't feed it like a bunch of herbs to make it pass out and then kill it, right? It, it wasn't a humane thing like they got an injection, and the lamb says, okay, I'll be your sacrifice, and, all right, I'm getting a little sleepy, and I'm out. No. 
It would grab the lamb, expose the jugular, and rip it open, friends. That's gross. And blood would come out. And that lamb, if you've ever seen this take place, if you've ever been to a slaughterhouse, you know it. They're mewling, they're kicking, they don't want to die, and boom, they're done. That visceral response, that, that's gross. I saw some faces kind of go, ugh. That's what our sin is. When they saw the lamb, when someone says, I've sinned against the Lord, and I'm bringing this lamb, and they're seeing this happen, the idea was that's the cost of your rebellion. That's the cost of what you have done. Do you see it? And that's what it was. Now, why does John in John chapter 1 look at Jesus and say, well, there's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world because they all actually used lambs. Well, why does he call a man a lamb? Because Hebrews chapter 10 says, look, the blood of goals and goats and sheep, that's not enough. Because a sheep didn't commit the sin, a man committed the sin. So a man ultimately needs to pay the price. But here's the problem, none of us can pay the price because none of us are the perfect lamb without spot or blemish. So there's the horns of a dilemma. The crime needs to be paid for by someone who committed the crime. God created a substitutionary system where blood was shed. People would realize there's a price to be paid for that, but the real crime is still left unpaid for. What's he going to do? Nobody in humanity can pay the price. That's why Jesus was incarnated, to be man and God, so that a man could pay the price and he had to be perfect. Friends, Jesus' sinlessness is not a coincidence that happened to be the case. Jesus' sinlessness had to be the case. That's exactly what had to happen because God is perfect as well. So we've talked about the reality of his sinlessness. The Bible makes it clear. We've talked about the reason of Jesus' sinlessness. The Bible makes that clear. Let's conclude by talking about the relevance of Jesus' sinlessness for us because that's what's really important here. In short, Jesus alone lived the life that every person, whether you go to church or don't, whether you're, consider, whether you're a Christian or not, every person is obligated to live before God because He is the Creator. The problem is none of us will, none of us can, right? And you know, when I was uh, studying my PhD, I did some work on uh, Carl Jung, he's a psychologist. He's most famous for what's called archetypes, right? That there are certain themes that run throughout culture and history, regardless of where you're from or what time period, we all kind of resonate with them. And one of the archetypes that he zeroed in on in, in, in psychology and counseling, I found it very interesting. He says, regardless of the culture and time period, Every single society shares this same, uh, and he was using terms like neurosis and psychosis, this same uh, phenomena, the same foreboding, guess what that is? The experience of being watched. Every society, every culture, regardless of socioeconomics, regardless of anything, every society shared in common this sense of foreboding that they're being watched. Guess what? It's because we are being watched, right? We feel that because that's exactly what's happening. Every single one of us lives before the eyes of God. So it's not surprising that every single culture has a sense that we are being watched because it's true, right? We all have a sense of there's an accountability to God or a moral accountability for us. Every one of us shares that. And basically, people have two responses to this experience, right? 
Basically, two responses, and I found this to be true of all people, right, is that either we try to lower, we try to lower the standards of God's expectations or we try to meet the standards of God's expectations, and I've generally found that people fall into two categories. Those who feel like we should lower the standards tend to be those who come from more of a, a kind of a progressive background. Um, they're more focused on relativism or acceptance is a high virtue, right? This is not a value statement on either, uh, either or of these. It's just what I've noticed. And people who think that we need to rise to meet the standards of God's expectations, they typically come from more conservative, traditional, or more religious backgrounds, right? Whether or not they're Christian, they could be Catholic, they could be, but they're just more religious, they believe they need to rise to meet the standard. So some people believe we need to lower, lower God's standards, the others try to meet God's standards, and basically it goes something like this. People say things along this line. God is love, so it doesn't matter how I live because He's just love, right? They're lowering the, the standard because the emphasis there is just that God is loving and that counts above all other things. Or, I couldn't love a God who doesn't accept me just as I am because the value there is acceptance above all other things, right? So, love and acceptance is more important than truth or change. Or finally, as long as I'm being true to myself, that's what counts, right? That's because of the value of authenticity. So those who want to lower the expectations of God, love and acceptance and authenticity, that's the driving value. On the other hand, those from more of a traditional background, they believe that we need to rise to meet the expectations. They, there's, there's, it's expressed kind of like this. How I live is how I make sure God loves me, right? Because there's a performance-based mentality there. Or I know that God loves me because of how I live. I'm doing everything He says, so how can He not love me? Or, as long as I try, that's what counts, right? Because the emphasis is on duty. Here's the problem with each of these. They both ignore the sinless life of Christ that was lived on behalf of those who had put their faith in Him. You see, the people who want to lower the standard of God's perfection, they deny Jesus' sinless life was necessary. The people who try to meet the standard of God's perfection, they deny the sinless life of Jesus was sufficient. In either case, they're trying to establish themselves before God. Friends, here's the relevance of Jesus' sinless life for us. We don't have to lower the standard of God's perfection or depend upon our performance to meet it. So we don't have to try and lower the bar so that we can somehow jump over it, or we don't have to live our lives trying to jump over it, because Jesus did that already. We can celebrate, actually, God's high, unattainable perfection because Jesus met it for us. See, friends, the gospel is much more than God forgives my sins. The gospel is that God forgives our sins because of the perfect death of Christ, and God sees me as righteous as he sees Jesus because of the perfect life of Christ. So the relevance of Jesus' sinless life for us, friends, is we can get off the rat race of performance or denial. See, the gospel proclaims to us that our failings will never be enough to take God's love from us, and our accomplishments will never be enough to secure God's love for us because it's not about us. It's about Jesus' work. And so we can be honest with our failures. We can be honest about our accomplishments. But see, these two alone are not enough to seal the deal. 
It takes Jesus' death because the price of our failures had to be paid, just like the price of our success had to be paid with Jesus' life. Friends, if we were making this up, if we were creating a religion that we wanted to spread around the globe, we would not have imagined a perfect, sinless Savior because we could not imagine such perfect grace and mercy to cover our failures. We're so busy trying to either deny God's standards of perfection or so busy trying to live up to God's standards of perfection, we miss what the gospel is entirely, and that is that God is upholding His own demands through His own grace and mercy, through His own Son, the sinless, incarnate Son of God. Next week when we get together, look at lesson three, we're going to look at His death and His one act of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the sinless life of your son on our behalf. There is no way I could ever, none of us could ever live up to your standards. And Father, you knew that. And so you sent your son who could live up to those standards, not for himself alone, but for all those who would trust in him. Father, thank you that upon the cross you made the great exchange, my sinfulness, for Christ's sinlessness. And Lord, we know that that, there's a reality for all those who would trust in your work, in your sacrifice on their behalf. And we pray that we would celebrate that and live in that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.